Welcome to Policy Matters. My name is Matt Dixon. And I'm Franz Buscher. And today we are not joined by any guests at all. Uh, it is July, which makes it difficult uh, sometimes to get hold of academics, even in this strange, uh, not quite locked down, not quite normal world uh, that we find ourselves in at the moment. Uh, but Franz and I are both here, so we have two policy-focused economists. And today we're going to talk about some of the economics around one of the non-COVID issues that's been dominating the news and policy discussions in recent weeks. Uh, and that's the issue of the Black Lives Matter movement. This obviously is a huge and complex topic, and uh, we're not qualified uh, to delve into the deep historical and sociological roots of the structures in society and the issues that have led to uh, systemic prejudices and some of the outright racism that still blights many lives uh, in this country and, and similar countries. Um, I also you know, want to acknowledge that we are two white guys, uh, not pretending to know what it's like to experience the sort of discrimination that has... Middle-aged white guys. Yeah, so. <laughs> okay, yeah, middle-aged. Perfectly inappropriate people to talk about this, but let's see. That's true, but, um, you know, we haven't experienced that discrimination, but it is important to point out that, you know, it's the job of everyone uh, to call out and highlight discrimination uh, wherever we find it. Um, and as two labour market economists, with experience of examining socioeconomic outcomes of different individuals uh, and what factors into that, we can speak to the topic from that viewpoint and, uh, and advocate for change. And, you know, this applies to discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity, but also on the basis of other characteristics, such as gender. Um, something we've talked about before, we had Sarah Smith and we talked about gender pay gaps and discrimination. And it is interesting that these pay gaps uh, persist and are rooted in historical prejudices against people of color and against women in the labor market. So we just observe what happens now in the labor market, but these things have long kind of history and there's lots of, as we said, you know, sociological and historical roots to these things. And we just kind of observe, wow, this is still something that we can see played out in the data. Um, and the data is something that we are much safer ground and much more qualified to kind of uh, talk about. So, um, so first off, friends, I mean, if we think about discrimination as an economist, what, do, what does it mean uh, in, in that sense as an economist, discrimination? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good question. I think the important thing is what does an economist think about this? Because uh, there's lots of people, there's lots of disciplines that um, research into discrimination as psychology, sociology, as history. Um, moreover, outside the academic disciplines, of course, each of us will have different uh, backgrounds, experiences of discrimination, whether it's gender-based discrimination, race discrimination. And obviously, recently in the news, we're seeing a lot of examples of kind of race-based uh, race -based discrimination really pop out in, uh, you know, people getting arrested, uh, people being dragged out of cars and all that kind of stuff. So, so there's lots of differences here, but uh, we are economists, so we'll, we'll try to give an economic angle uh, on, on, on this matter. We, we also work in this field sort of tangentially. A lot of the shows that we've been talking about really over the last two to three years that we've been doing this have always been related to some notion of disadvantage, some group-based disadvantage, one group against another one. Usually it's always Often it's couched within the context of education, social mobility, but you know it's only one step further to kind of gender and race and age discrimination. So we do kind of work in this field. It is a very large field, uh, discrimination and economics. We don't work directly in it, um, but 
it's also worth saying that, of course, we as individuals discriminate all the time. Discrimination is part of what makes us human. Uh, we discriminate on taste, on color, on thoughts, on objects, uh, events. Uh, you know, it's what allows us to choose left from right, crossing the street or not crossing the street. So discrimination is really just another word of saying, you know, making a choice. So how does discrimination play into the economics literature? Well, let me just read out this definition and then I'll pick out the key words here. So to an economist, discrimination is a situation in which equally materially productive persons are treated unequally on the basis of observable characteristics such as race, gender, age, religious beliefs, etc. So there's a couple of words I want to pick out from here, and that's productive, that's very important, treated unequally, based on observable. So the other important word here is observable characteristics. So discrimination to an economist is, is the kind of discrimination based on things that we can see and observe in relation to productivity that don't matter on productivity. So, so that's quite important. And um, yeah, you know, we know that discrimination is illegal, uh, of course, in an economic sense. Uh, often it's um, to us as labor economists, it's in relation to kind of employment matters, in terms of wage matters. Um, but also, I should note that not all types of discrimination based on observable characteristics are illegal. So we know the, the, the common one, we've got racism, sexism, ageism, and ableism. These are all clearly illegal. Uh, but not everything is. I mean, there's other aspects of observable characteristics uh, that, that are not grounded in law. So things such as fatism. <laughs> I'm sorry for the terminology here, but it's correct. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the most common word we use. Like, it's not the yeah, most yeah, common yeah. word to use. Lookism is another one. That's Lookism. discrimination based on looks on beauty. Um, so these are not necessarily uh, illegal per se. And there is a literature out there. There's a literature that um, looks at uh, people's beauty. Uh, in fact, I think we might have talked about it tangentially at some point. Uh, but there's clear evidence for a long time now that certain people with certain looks do much better in the labor market. Uh, and again, when you're talking about the size and the weight of people, you know, there's issues, you know, airlines have dealt into this many years ago about whether they should be charging more for people who are heavier, because obviously it has a direct impact on the fuel expenditure in the plane. Yeah, I mean, I, I do remember looking at this a bit during training for recruitment, like in the university and before, you know, if you're going to be on a recruitment panel and you have to learn all the kind of the legalities around that and and you know protected characteristics and things you cannot discriminate on but i do remember finding out that you can discriminate there are some things like about looks right um in, mm. in the sense of i remember it just stuck in my mind that with tattoos you can legally discriminate against somebody in offering a job on the basis of uh you know maybe they've got a tattoo that's like visible or um something like that so I mean, friends, you got any tattoos yes. that we need to know about? <laughs> Not that I'm showing. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I think that's all we need to know about that. But, but it is interesting that things like that, you know, you'd think that would be something that you cannot... You would think in the modern day and age that that, that that wouldn't be possible. But it is possible. And actually, going back to racism, it is actually also possible to discriminate on race legally. So, again, it's, it's not often discussed. Uh, and that is quite rare. It's not something we hear about a lot, but uh, it's called an occupational requirement. And in certain industries, mainly the kind of the creative industries, such as movies, um, 
you can get away with discriminating on skin color. For example, if an actor's role, a role in the movie requires a person to be black or white, you're going to have to hire a person who's black or white for that role. And the the interesting thing here is at that point, the skin color or the gender or the age is then directly related to productivity, of course, right? So there's a productivity aspect that suddenly starts playing a role that is part of the observable characteristics. So it's not racism as such anymore. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a productivity matter. Uh, that's interesting because it ties in with what you're saying as, you know, that's the key thing with the economics view of, you know, discrimination. But when we're thinking about the labor market, that it's relating to characteristics that are nothing to do with productivity, but a basis on which people are being discriminated against. So I guess, I suppose it's the same with, if you've got a role where it's, you know, a female character, then you are able to discriminate in favor of a female actor rather than a male actor. Um, exactly. Think, yeah. And I think it's also, I'm sure it's also uh, in certain things like restaurants where it's uh, an Indian restaurant, I think you are allowed to say, okay, well, the Indian chef has uh, a productivity characteristics potentially that is, uh, allows you to discriminate yeah. on that basis. You're right. it's, very, it's very narrow, right? In it's very things. narrow because, but be careful, if you're in an Indian restaurant and you're hiring an Indian, it's not because of their skin color. It's probably because their their Indianness is related to yes, some exactly. increased but productivity in cooking. So that yeah, that's about their nationality rather than skin color per se. It's the kind of yeah fact that they are an Indian applying for the job in an Indian restaurant. Exactly, exactly. So I think the the key thing is always for an economist, it's that relation to productivity. And in a very few circumstances, you'll be able to link somebody's nationality, somebody's skin color, somebody's age, somebody's gender, whatever it is to their productivity for that job, right? And then it suddenly becomes about, you know, again, it's about productivity differentiation uh, and who's the best person for that job. So, um, yeah, that's kind of discrimination to an economist. There is another kind of affirmative action route, uh, which is just really the legalization of discrimination, quite popular in the US, especially in the education system, where you do start favoring people based on their race or their gender or whatever to, 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 basically correct wrongs that happened earlier in the system. Uh, but that is then just literally legal uh, discrimination. Uh, it's not based on productivity to correct for them. And so, so we think as economists about different types of discrimination in the labor market. Um, so I think we talked about this before with um, Alex Bryson when we talked about um, fantasy football and uh, when people choose players and, and whether they're... Um, black players or white players and we talked about different types of discrimination so taste-based discrimination and statistical discrimination do you want to tell us a little bit about those yeah so i mean that's 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 actually really quite important uh and these are the kind of theories that economists developed back in the 50s and 60s uh and a little bit also the 70s and that's sort of you know economists asking the question where does discrimination come from and and there's kind of two differentiations here uh, there's this idea of statistical discrimination and this idea of the taste for discrimination. So I'll talk a little bit about them, but the ultimate effect is that both of them are still discriminatory. So both of them still choose observable characteristics that are unrelated to productivity, right? So let's start with statistical discrimination or statistical discrimination. That's really a lack of information. So it's uh, to do with group-based behavior and often, at least in the discrimination literature, it's sort of cast in this idea that 
So let's take the US example. Um, often there it's cast in this sort of black versus white uh, scenario where you might have uh, a, a, a group of well, black people who have lower educational attainment on average than whites. And then what people do is they make inferences about the productivity of that group of people. So you might, for example, have a black person who's highly educated, but because he's part of the black group, somebody who's looking in from the outside makes an inference that, um, you know, that particular observable characteristics is part of a group of people who have lower educational attainment and therefore lower productivity. Um, that is, of course, discrimination, but it's based on what is essentially a lack of information. This is often used by insurance companies, for example, by the way. Uh, you know, we've got this male uh, versus uh, female driver scenario where insurance companies know that women, on average, tend to be better drivers, have less crashes, so therefore have low insurance rates. And that's this idea of statistical discrimination. You're discriminating against somebody because they're part of a group on which you have some information. And they do that on age as well, right? So insurance, young drivers in general have to pay much higher premiums. And that, again, is just based purely on the fact that that group that they belong to, on average, has negative characteristics with regard to insurance risk. Uh, exactly. So, you know, you might be a young driver and be the best driver in the world, but you're being discriminated against because you're part of a group that has a worse accident record. So that's kind of statistical discrimination. It's, it's very, it's still discrimination. It's very personal if it hits you, but it's something that uh, underneath all of this is a lack of information, uh, is a kind of uh, asymmetry of information. And if that can be somehow untangled or discovered or revealed, that would kind of disappear in some sense, right? Um, on the other hand, is this idea of taste-based discrimination, and that actually has multiple components to it, but the, the high-level component is that um, it's, it is discrimination, it is, it is a preference for certain characteristics, so employers may prefer white people or males compared to blacks or non-whites or females or whatever it is. And um, economists often sort of operationalize this by um, essentially arguing that employers attach a higher wage cost or a higher price to people who don't fit that, that what they like, right? And that's just kind of this idea of a, of a tasteful discrimination. And you can split that into different parts where essentially you've got employer discrimination, employee discrimination, and consumer discrimination. And this is the kind of stuff that we've talked about a little bit with Alex Bryson and kind of, you know, this, this uh, sort of this discrimination in sports where, you know, there's a big literature on, for example, testing consumer discrimination. So uh, I think this is what Alex was talking about, which is kind yeah. of attendance in a football stadium or something like this. And, you know, what happens when you change white players for black players and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the things that come out of there are very much how the consumers, the people who view football, deal with that. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail here, but again, interesting, theoretically, uh, if you believe in kind of the fundamentals of economic theory, which of course many of us don't, but if you do, if you do read your 101 textbook, it kind of argues that employer discrimination, so where employers um, discriminate against uh, blacks or, or women or whatever it is, um, they're kind of making themselves more unproductive right um they attach a virtual artificial higher price to that labor they're not willing to employ that labor so therefore firms that are non-discriminatory 
and are willing to hire that labour will tend to have in the long run better economic performances and push out discriminatory firms off the marketplace. So this is kind of this is a self-correcting mechanism in the theory, which is really interesting because, because of course, in reality, right, uh, uh, the gender pay gap, uh, the black-white pay gap, or whatever pay gap we're really looking at has not budged at all <laughs> for the last 50 years. So this is kind of this disconnect between what we observe uh, in, uh, in the data and what some economic theory tells us. Yeah, it's interesting. As you say, that in theory, uh, we'd expect that over time, these things should be driven out by competitive pressures uh, in the economy. But yeah, as, as you say, often the kind of collision between Economics 101 and uh, the reality of the labour market doesn't, doesn't leave theory um, untouched. And actually, uh, the empirics don't line up with what we might expect. But having said that, um, you know, I think we will talk about in, in a minute, but we have seen some uh, progress on these things over time. But you'd think by, you know, 2020, yeah, you would have thought that you know, this has been discussed since the 50s, 60s, ideas of pay gaps and discrimination. And you would have thought that by now, the forces would have worked this through. Um, but yeah, it hasn't. And I think this is probably the best kind of evidence that we have that there is just discrimination in the labor market and it's been there all along and 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 it's still there and and of course we now have a lot of personal stories hitting the airwaves about discrimination but uh, the fact that a lot of these we're gonna we're gonna come back to the method uh, the methodology in a moment but i'm gonna call it unconditional pay gaps now we'll come back to what this means yeah. in a second haven't budged at all since basically we've been measuring these things is is to me um, somebody who knows a bit about the theory and the data, just very strong evidence that that discrimination is ripe in the labour market across a variety of observable characteristics, and it just hasn't moved at all. And um, so there's, there's, there's deeper questions, where does this come from, and, um, and really what can be done about it? The, the literature has discussed this for a long, long time now, and you know the answers to this question, are, are, I'm not sure what the answers are. Well, we'll maybe come back to that at the end when we put ourselves in the shoes of the DWP or, and, and ask, right, what do we do? What's the policy? But um, well, I think we need a bit, more, a bit more thinking time before we come to that. <laughs> yeah. So let me just talk a little bit about measuring this kind of stuff, because this is kind of where you and me work. Um, uh, we are applied economists. So we, we do a lot of stuff with data and we try to tell stories from data. And although we don't work directly with this kind of data, we work closely enough to understand it quite well. In fact, I teach stuff in, to my students using examples, quite basic examples, and maybe I'll run through one right now. But um, a lot of the stuff is, is done with regression analysis, right? So, and uh, this particular form of regression analysis called Guaca blinded decomposition analysis. Never thought I'd say that on radio, uh, and <laughs> nor will I explain it in too much detail. But essentially, it's a way of controlling for factors and then allowing us to condition out the observ observable elements of these of these gaps. So, what do I mean by all of this? Right. So, let's take any random uh, pay gap. So, let's take uh, the gender pay gap. Uh, it, it, it doesn't really matter what scenario we apply this to. Uh, so, if we take any. Any random data set in the UK, I say random data set, it's usually the labor force survey yeah. because you do need the right kind of data for this. So, you know, data quality is extremely important in all of this. But uh, so let's take, say you take the labor force survey and you just do a basic regression or really just a, a, 
a means difference in this case between men and women or blacks and whites. And what you'll find is there's a, there's a coefficient that comes out. Um, usually it's in the range of minus 20, zero point, minus 0 0.2. Uh, and what does that mean? It means there's about a 20% pay differential between men and women or blacks and whites. Well, for, I think for um, white and non-white, it's about minus 10 or something like this. It does vary, fluctuates around a bit. But anyway, so there's this, there's this pay differential. Right, and that's just a raw unconditional pay differential. And then what you start doing is you need to start asking yourself, okay, what drives these pay differentials? So you need to start controlling for the factors of productivity. That's what we do as an economist, especially the labor economist. What's an important factor of productivity? Education. So that's kind of pretty much the first variable that you start controlling for in a regression analysis, because we obviously believe that education is a very important influence on the productivity. So we, right. we start off with this unconditional gap, which is just all men in the labor market compared with all women and we're not taking any account of anything yeah. about those other than gender yeah, yeah. and so, by the way this is the kind of stuff you see often in the news okay so yeah. every year yeah. there is this kind of big news story every, all the time the, there'll be a big news stories i've been following this for 10 15 years and it's always the same kind of i'm sure at bbc news they copy and paste last year's article and just update the numbers and you have these big unconditional pay gaps and they make a big hoo-ha about, okay, you know, women get paid less, blacks get paid less, yad, yad, yad. That, that's all fine. That's all fair and square. The problem is it's very easy as an academic, and I'm saying this purely as an academic and as a scientist, to throw a hypothetical argument in there and say, well, you know, that's not a problem. If all the men are highly educated and all the women have low education, then that's just productivity differentials working themselves out of the labor market. Now, obviously, <laughs> that's not the case, let's be clear, right? But yeah. it's a hypothetical argument you can chuck in there and say you're not controlling for factors of productivity. So therefore, you know, these pay gaps may have a very basic productivity differential explanation. So, so we're not yeah. comparing like with like, effectively, we're the same. Yeah, exactly. if it is that one group has more education, more experience than another, then it could be that that's what's driving the difference. Exactly. And at the end of the day, it all comes down to this like for like comparison. So going back to black life matter. So historically, for example, um, looking at data, uh, blacks or non-whites in the UK, um, in the UK, particularly uh, Pakistani Bangladeshis used to do very badly on this, on the education metrics, right? They tended to have much lower levels of education. So you can immediately make a theoretical argument saying, well, these groups have low levels of education, so therefore their wages are lower and, you know, bang, that's, that's the difference explained. What's the problem kind of a thing. Um, at that point, obviously, you know, there's a different story here why there are educational differences. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a moment, sort of, you know, where does discrimination really start? So we're kind of at an end point here in the labor market, okay? Uh, now, what we have seen over the last few years is that uh, there's been a huge catch up by ethnic minorities in the UK, and also women tend to be better qualified than men on average. So often when you chuck in the educational control, rather than it, <laughs> explaining your pay gap actually increases yeah. it it gets worse <laughs> it, gets, yeah. it gets worse so it's kind of like uh oh what's going on here right so actually the story is even worse than it looks uh, unconditionally but anyway long story short you need to start controlling for these different uh, productivity differentials and it's not just about education it can be about occupational differences so women tend to choose particular industries that have particular wage rates um and uh 
women also tend to prefer part-time work, which tends to have lower hourly pay. So there's all sorts of issues that, 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 that pop up in there and that people start controlling for. Now, once you control for all of this, you can make a theoretical argument, and this is, well, this is the problem, right? At the end of the day, the empirical science is still based on theory. Once you control for all these productivity differentials, what economists claim is that whatever's left is discrimination. If you control for everything that explains productivity, right, whatever difference is left can only be explained by non-productivity differentials, which by definition, the one I read out earlier, yeah. is discrimination. So that's how applied economists discover, try to discover discrimination in data in the labor market. And um, yeah, and obviously there's a, <laughs> number one, there's, there's a story there. Do you theoretically believe that? <laughs> And two, um, you know, there's all sorts of interesting bits of data and how these have developed over time. I think that's the, that's the issue. So we can lay it all out as, as economists and, and doing the empirical side and we can run a regression, we can bung all these things in. We can say, oh, look, we start off with this big um, pay gap uh, between two groups, men and women, say, and then we control for these things, as you say, occupational structure and uh, maybe part-time, full-time, all these sorts of things. And we put it in and we say, oh, well, look, if we compare um, men and women who are doing the same job, uh, working the same sort of hours, have the same education and experience, then we find that there's not much of a gap. And then, as you say, too easily then the argument becomes, oh, well, look, there's no problem at all with discrimination because look, when you compare like with like, we've got exactly uh, the same pay. But the big, the big issue, and I think it's really important and has really been highlighted by... Um, Black Lives Matter is the fact that we what we need we need to take a step back like you said friends we're at the end point we're in the labor market we need to take a step back and say well hold on um, why is it that these groups have lower education less experience are working in particular industries that are low paying are more likely to be working part-time those things kind of explain the the gap but only in the sense that uh, they sh their, their characteristics that are associated with certain groups but we need to understand well hold on why is it that people of color are in these particular sectors disproportionately why is it that they have this education profile why is it that they're going to this university and not another university so we take the steps back and you see well actually there is these are the kind of systemic institutional factors that play out and as they play out, they end up with this distribution of people across education and across sectors that results in, oh, okay, you get this big raw pay gap uh, and that it's, it's explained, but only in so much as uh, it highlights these racial inequalities and all these kind of productivity factors uh, which result in this, this pay gap and, uh, at the end result when you get into the labour market. Yeah, we, we, we've, I mean, we've talked about this we're kind of repeating ourselves to some extent over, over these shows, and I apologize to any listeners, but we've talked about this previously, you know, that if you look at social mobility work, the, the stuff that people are presenting happened 30 years ago, right? The, the seeds for that were created at birth, and we measure people at their outcomes at age 30, 40, whatever. And I was reading an interview the other day with some uh, U.S. Army general about the distribution of 
uh, blacks uh, and uh, women in the top echelons of the US Army, right? The generals and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's 2 million people in the army and whatever, whatever, 500 generals, right? And kind of the pathway from the bottom to the top. And, and that interview was basically saying what you see now are based on decisions that were made 20, 30 years ago. And it's, 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 for there to be meaningful change, you know, whatever you do now in terms of actions, it will take another 20 years for that to, to feed through into the, the statistics and the data. So there are sort of these long lags uh, associated with a lot of the empirical stuff that we do. Uh, and there are these very interesting questions in sort of the empirical analysis of the labor market in terms of these uh, racial differences and gender differences where it comes from and you can see from the education data where kind of we work that um, racial gaps emerge very early on in the curriculum in the life cycle of an individual at age six yeah you already start seeing educational attainment gaps and these just they never converge they they just keep going and going and going and it kind of seems crazy that 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 already takes place so early and so young you know and um, I guess a lot of the long-term answers will be uh, early early uh, life cycle intervention yeah it's the same I mean it's these factors that uh, there's so many things that you know the sociologists would talk about intersectionality uh, we'd we'd think about as economists this kind of interactive effects of um, different factors often disadvantage um uh, neighborhoods and low-income poverty all these things kind of coalesce and overlap with each other and we see the same thing so often with the social mobility work that we've talked about a lot you, you see that when children as soon as they arrive at school there's already these already these gaps uh and they just expand over time throughout schooling or they, they often get larger and by the time you get to age 16 or 18 in the in the work you know i do looking at who goes to university who gets into different universities and you think well again if you start controlling for things you say okay well look once you control for attainment at a level there's no difference in uh who goes to university people from the top people from the bottom of the distribution of income oh there's no difference but there's a huge difference when you don't control for um attainment Okay, so it's like, okay, by the time you get to age 18, all the damage has been done, you know, as you say, from age five, six, when people are already arriving at school. Um, you know, the ones who do make it and do get the attainment at A-level, yes, they do, you know, they go on to university and they go on to jo good jobs in the labor market, perhaps not as good the jobs as other people, uh, which is something we've talked about before with Sam Friedman. Um, still, there are kind of structures that operate um, to affect people's wages even though they've got the same qualifications but the big issue is the horse is bolted by the time you get to age 16 age 18 we've got to go much further back and look at why is it that the education gap for yeah for black students is large at, at gcse at a level and then in university attainment as well um so it's, these are things it's, we need it's to part fix. of the problem i think of this discipline and i just i'll talk about something else in a moment but just to bring this all together one of the issues somebody like myself is that this really is a massive field uh, in, in, in labor economics but in economics in general but also across economics and sociology psychology and all these other disciplines and and to really be an expert in this 
um, you 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 need to have the, uh, so much knowledge and understanding of the different aspects of all of this that it's it becomes very difficult um, to to I think integrate all this out uh, and and fully understand uh, the issues at hand here at, at, as an academic. So I think this is actually a really really complicated field to to kind of discuss and talk about and also present evidence and make policy decisions on because it just spans into everything. But let me just, uh, because we've been talking about a lot of theory and sort of life cycle, and I'm sure we've lost 90% of our listeners by now. <laughs> so let me just <laughs> ask you about the data. Is there any good news? You know, I think the Bank of England recently published a report on um, gender and you know, racial differences in the UK. Is there anything that we can glean from that? Yeah, so that's right. So just this month, actually, Bank of England have, have put out this report looking at ethnic pay gaps in the UK and gender pay gaps. So focusing on those two areas where historically um, there's been big pay gaps and, and still, as we've talked about, these gaps still persist. So they've looked across the Labour Force survey uh, from 1994 to 2019, about half, half a million individuals they've looked at over this time. And it really is the most detailed data that we can get hold of on this topic and say and i should just say just again as a data person actually numbers matter here right the uk has 87 percent whites on uh, in right and, and yeah. there, aren't, there aren't that many non-whites unfortunately to do this kind of analysis you need very large sample sizes so you know there's a interesting thing here about just literally sample sizes and what this report looks at is huge yeah and that is that's a good point because it's really important that actually we talk about um, the the BME uh, pay gap uh, or BAME, and actually, when you look at it, there's real difference within these groups. So you need a very very large sample to then be able to say, actually, it doesn't actually make sense to talk about an ethnic pay gap or a BME pay gap because when you look at different ethnicities, you find very different results. So this report is showing, for example, that if you just average across all the people in the data and the different ethnicities and you'd say okay well the the ethnic pay gap is about eight percent okay so um people from uh, black and minority ethnic groups on average their median um earnings eight percent lower okay um but if you then dig into that a little bit and disaggregate you find that chinese uh workers earn about 15 percent more uh than white workers um but then there are gaps for black and Afro-Caribbean workers, these are the, and, and, and for Pakistani and Bangladeshi background, there's kind of 13% up to 20%. So it really doesn't make sense, you know, to group a whole lot of different ethnicities together and say, oh, here's an ethnic pay gap. That is often what happens because data doesn't allow the sample sizes. Uh, but it's just really important just to flag that up that actually um, it might not even make sense to talk about a single kind of ethnic pay gap. Having said that, we're going to talk about the ethnic pay gap for a, few, <laughs> for a few minutes here. Quick question for you. What has the development been on the ethnic pay gap and also the gender pay gap over the last couple of years? Has it been getting better or, or has it been getting worse or is it the same? Often we think it's the same, but... Yeah, I mean, I think historically, if you look at the long time frame, like you said earlier, it's, it's not completely gone away, right? It's that, you know, it hasn't changed massively. Uh, but in recent years, it has been falling. Uh, the gender pay gap has been falling. It's still around about 10%. Um, and that's taking into account, you know, different characteristics, um, education and experience and that sort of thing. So you still get this 
10%. Um, and this ethnic pay gap, again, has been falling, but is around about the same, about 10 11%. But again, these vary massively by, by group. So for the Bangladeshi group, it's minus 20%. Um, for Black African, Asian, Pakistani, it's about minus 13%. Um, and for Chinese, I said the unconditional, you know, there's a positive, but actually when you take into account qualifications, because Chinese workers tend to be more qualified, you end up with a negative um, ethnic pay gap, about 6%. And this is one of the interesting things, we touched on it earlier, that you know, if we want to try and compare groups and you look at characteristics, if you look at the characteristics of ethnic groups in general, their education characteristics and where they live disproportionately in high wage areas, big cities, uh, and a lot of um, ethnic minority workers live in London, a higher wage place. So when you take that into account, actually they should have higher, higher wages than their white counterparts, which gives you an ex handle on the extent to which there is unexplained discrimination. And so that's still you know, a problem that about half of the um, pay gap is really down to bias or, or discrimination. Yeah, I think there is, I mean, it's interesting that you said about London here, there's obviously, we're talking about sort of aggregate and case statistics, but, you know, again, we've talked about this previously in shows about sort of regional differences and regional pay rates. And I was reading somewhere the other day that um, something like 90% of all London black cabbies are white, and then 90% of all the radio cabs are, are non-whites, right? There's this huge differential between literally who's driving uh, you in a taxi in London. Uh, and it's, it's just, just massively stark, right? And and that kind of tells you something about sort of some sort of segregation happening into occupations and into yeah. very, very, very particular within the occupation. There's this kind of quite, quite severe segregation. Going I on. think, again, that's something we talked about before with Sam Friedman about, you know, even within occupations, you get this kind of grading of different jobs, different firms. And yeah, the, the drivers who are driving uh, the taxis that are private hire and Often they'll also be driving for Uber as well, but these are very kind of insecure, um, precarious jobs uh, that involve, yeah, um, not a lot of job protection, not a lot of rights and holiday and all, you know, all those kind of things. So even within, as you say, the same occupation, you get these differences. Um, who goes into which sector? Who goes into which firm within the sector? There's another paper, a student, um, uh, a PhD student in economics in, in Bath that I know very well has been looking at this for graduates. So looking specifically at the graduate labor market uh, and seeing again, using labor force survey data, well, the, actually the annual population survey, which is um, a component uh, additional to the labor force survey. And you'd think that, you know, this is a, um, a group that are pretty similar because they, you know, they're graduates in the sense that they've all been to higher education. But again, there's differences in terms of who goes uh, to what, uh, university but those differences don't really explain very much of the pay gap um, what is really driving the pay gap between uh, white and non-white graduates which is about 13 percent for men about four percent for women what's driving it is the occupation that people go into okay so it's sector <clears throat> characteristics the job um, explains about 40 percent of the pay gap Okay, which says, you know, if you could equalize those things, then that pay gap would kind of reduce by 40%. But it still means that 60% is unexplained. And that's for, you know, that's for graduates to all have very similar levels of education. 
So I kind of wanted to ask you about this unexplained part because we've been talking about a lot now about conditional and unconditional pay gaps and all this kind of stuff. But basically, long story short, there's a mountain of empirical evidence that consistently comes out with this with this notion that there's a significant portion of the pay gap that is just unexplainable, right? And that we we tend to assume that is discrimination. And it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, half for half the pay differential to be attributable to something that we think is discrimination seems to be i mean you know it's it's just the the societal impact of this in on the real world is just tremendous you know it's one thing when we see these numbers flashing on our screen but you know we're talking about millions of people it's yeah. it's it's really it's 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 it just trumps the individual news stories that you see somebody being dragged out of their car and arrested yeah. because they're black by such a massive factor but yet it doesn't have the same emotional impact no but actually one thing that stood out to me in the bank of england report was just the the value if you know if these things were corrected if these pay discriminations were corrected it's billions of pounds value to the economy you know it's it's literally you know uh, i think you know up to three billion pounds to correct the gender pay gap um, that's what it would represent to the economy. So there's a big, you know, there's a huge numbers uh, that are, are operating and affecting people's uh, experience. So I guess just one other question I have on this methodological issue here. So we spend a lot of the show talking about how difficult it is to measure discrimination and, and just what the, the extent of it is. But there is another way methodologically to, to, to look into aspects of discrimination, certainly within the labor market. And these are called audit studies. Do you want to give us a quick overview of what that is, Matt? Yeah, so these audit studies are sometimes called correspondence studies. Uh, and this has been very popular in looking at kind of labor market discrimination. In 2004, there was a very famous paper by two economists, Marion Bertrand and Sendil Mullianathan. And um, they uh, published in the American Economic Review, so a very top journal in economics. And the paper is called, Are Emily and Greg More Employable Than Lakeisha and Jamal? A field experiment on labor market discrimination and what they did is they responded to job adverts um, in boston and chicago newspapers and they put in fictitious cvs and applications with very similar you know qualifications and experience on them but some had very white sounding names so they had yeah like greg and brad and neil and emily and, and allison and uh, but some of them had very african-american sounding names uh, like jerome and leroy lakeisha latoya Aisha, they put these applications in and saw what happened. And it's fascinating that it comes back that there was significant discrimination against the CVs, against these fictitious people with the African-American names. So white names received about 50% more calls for interviews, given the same kind of qualifications experience, just the fact that they had a, a white sounding name, 50% more callbacks. Um, and you know, also, uh, if you had a better CV, so if you had a white name and a better CV, the higher quality um, CV elicits more callbacks for whites than African-Americans. So if you had an African-American okay. and you give them a higher quality CV, uh, it doesn't have you know, the same impact compared with other lower quality CVs. Yeah, there's been quite a few audit studies by now because it seems for economists, it's kind of an experimental design and it's, it seems to be a very sure way to get behind um, this. Is, so you, you're not guessing. I mean, this is discrimination, right? I mean, you're not guessing anymore like, like we do with our applied data analysis. This is just <laughs> the employers are plain, in plain sight discriminating against these CVs and yeah, you can measure I, that. 
and they've done, you know, this has been replicated. So since this study came out in 2004, um, there's been, I think, 90 different studies uh, since then, uh, at least, well, 93 till about 2016. And they're looking at discrimination on the basis of things like race, gender, religion, disability, sexual orientation. And actually, there's been eight in the UK. And the UK studies have found the same sort of thing, that there's discrimination on the basis of race, gender, disability, age, and, and even looks, yeah, one of these kind of beauty uh, or facial um, disfigurement, having a, you know, people discriminated against in the labour market. Well, it's so. stronger than you think it is. So it's stronger than this whole looking thing. I've looked into it yeah, a while ago the, because I mean, there's a really interesting one on teachers, which shows that good-looking teachers get much higher performance scores from the students. I think right, that, so. it, that, it, that explains the values <laughs> I've been getting in my uh, <laughs> teaching evaluations, but we won't go into that any further. Yeah, so I think these audit studies are, 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 to me, you know, if you put, once you start doing a meta-analysis of everything we talked about, you take these audit studies, you put them together with this empirical data where you find these, these, these pay gaps and these continuous, unexplained uh, pay differentials. Uh, really, it's quite, it's quite a depressing story that comes out for, for decades now. Uh, there is discrimination in the labor market. It's, it's 100% there. So I guess the question is like, what, from a policy perspective, what can policymakers do? You know, if we are into the DWP, what is, you know, what can we do to try and address these long-standing um, pay differences? I've been thinking about this for the show, and you know what? It's something that I'm dealing with at the workplace. I can't go into too much details, of course, <laughs> but you know, I'm sure your your university, just like mine, is taking these issues very seriously now. We're implementing a lot of policies. Um, to, to engage with Black Lives Matters, but also across the spectrum, gender, uh, non-white and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and being somebody who does work in a managerial position, I do have influence on, on, on steering this. And I find myself thinking a lot about what are the consequences from these actions? What are the unintended consequences? Um, you know, if we give all our non-white staff a pay rise to equalize them, you know, is that ultimately fair? Uh, because I know underneath all of this, we have to remember, you know, there are productivity differentials, but, but then again, where do these come from, from an early age? So it seems to me it's, it's, it's quite hard. And I generally don't think there is a fast solution to this other than if you subscribe to this whole affirmative action idea where you're correcting a wrong with what is technically another wrong, where, you know, you have positive discrimination in favor of non-whites, but then of course that's negative discrimination for whites. So um, that seems to me from a policy space, the fast way of doing it, whether it's the correct way of doing it, and one that society in Europe and in the UK would subscribe to is another question. I think the longer answer is unfortunately, you know, you have to wait it out over the generations and, and attack this point very early on. We've talked a lot about schooling, access to schooling, access to university, social mobility. Social mobility has raised components within it. Um, Lucinda Platt, who I think we need to invite onto the show at some point, has done a lot of work on social mobility for ethnic minorities in the UK. And, you know, there are stories there that are very important. Uh, but whatever, whatever you do at that point just takes 20 years to... Yeah, to, I think to that's the out. thing. It's, the, it's long term. It's trying to address um, the choices and the systems and the structures that mean that people of colour are filtered and, and 
directed into certain occupations, certain positions within society in a way that doesn't happen um, to white people in general. Uh, I mean, we have the same issues with class. Again, we've talked, you know, to Lindsay McMillan, we've talked to Sam Freeman about this, the, the ways in which people of different classes are directed into certain career paths and then within um, careers and occupations directed into certain firms and certain levels and certain types of job. Um, so these are the long-term things. I think, I mean, one thing that could be done, you know, firms have to publish their gender pay gap now if they have more than 250 employees. And that's a really positive thing because it really just shines the light on this issue and gives corporate firms, you know, responsibility and nobody wants to be on the front pages, right? And so this is a good way. Um, but also, you know, at the moment, there's no requirement for ethnic pay gaps to be published. So again, that could be something. Uh, I think the fastest way to change people's minds and get people to do stuff will, will ultimately be through, you know, uh, uh, the media is very powerful these days. Right? Being on the front page in a bad light is probably yeah. the fastest way to spur any organization into action. Uh, so, you know, we're economists, we're social scientists, we think about changing behavior and all this kind of stuff, and it takes forever. But um, the fastest way probably is, and that's kind of literally what's been happening over the last six weeks, is, you know, organizations, individuals being named and shamed and immediate actions arising from that. I should add, there's an interesting little thing um, coming through, and I discovered this many years ago before all of this, this kicked off, um, where I tried to get access to the HR data, and I basically sent an email to HR saying, hey, can you give me a whole bunch of, uh, can you give me the observable characteristics for my staff? gender, race, and whatnot, so that I can run some stats to see, is there any differences, right? Pretty simple question. I mean, <laughs> I got a lot of trouble for asking that question. Really? Uh, and, yeah, not, not because they didn't want to give it to me, or because you know, I, was, I was looking at whatever, you know, racial differences within how we allocate research analysis, but simply because of GDPR regulation, that that information cannot be made available um, for managers to investigate their own firm. So often actually there are, now we live in a world where, you know, with, you know information is treated as, as a high value commodity. Um, there are issues around, you know, security, sensitivity, who has access to all this kind of stuff. And actually these regulations can make it very difficult for organizations to look within themselves and, um, and, and, and discover any issues. But I think you're right. The key is dealing with that and having access to the data because it's only by having access to the data, shining a light on this, exposing it, um, that we're going to start to make uh, progress. Even though we've talked about the problems with data, uh, essentially, we, you know, the only way we are going to um, get change is to uh, be able to at least identify the problem, start looking at, okay, how has this come about? Uh, and start trying to do something about at the, it. At the end of the day, what I said was right, but, you know, this data has been there for the last 40, 50 years. The magnitude of the injustice and unfairness has been known to anybody willing to look at it since the 1950s, since we got good quality data. But now, only now, recently, thankfully, some events in America and across the world where it's been videotaped on people's smartphones have garnered that emotional response from the rest of us that actually people are changing their behavior. You know, I, I, and kind of what I said is kind of right. We, we were talking about data a lot and I said, oh, we're going to, you know, we've lost 90% of our listeners. But, you know, if we take what we talked about to the government or to BBC News, people don't 
have that emotional response to the um, you know the data evidence it just it just isn't there whilst you know these 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 little video clips on twitter of people being abused just have much more impact and that's really driving a lot of change and you know that's fine it's absolutely right um and um We'll see where it goes. Unfortunately, again, for with my academic hat on, I, I, I suspect this will take a very long time to filter through into the data. Okay, well, I think we've had a, um, a good discussion of a lot of these discrimination issues, and uh, we're going to have to leave it there. My name is Matt Dixon. <laughs> and my name is Franz Buscher. You've been listening to Policy Matters, and we'll be back with more soon.